Salabona, and thanks for listening. Welcome to the Wines of South Africa podcast. I'm U.S. Country Manager Jim Clark. In each episode, we explore some aspect of South African wine by talking with winemakers, winery owners, and other members of South Africa's vibrant wine industry. Today, we're going to take a look at the District of Wellington. This area, nestled up against the mountains north of Parle, has long been known within the industry as a source of grapes and of vines as well. It's actually home to the great majority of South Africa's vine nurseries. But more and more, it's becoming a name that savvy winebreakers are looking out for. Let's let our producers introduce themselves and give us some background. I am Andrew Barnes. I am a third generation on Misha Estate. Misha Estate is a family-owned vineyard in Groenberg in Wellington. Uh, we are a wine farm, but we are also a vine nursery. So those are the two legs to our business. My brother, Gary, is continuing the nursery business to this day. When I came to the farm, I decided that my father was great at the nursery. I had an interest in it. I started in it. I did quite a lot of work in the nursery, but my passions really were the grapes and the wine, and we never made wine, and it was something that I really wanted to do. So I began our wine business, which we've been growing slowly but surely over the last long time now, 20 years plus. Misha Estate was brought by my grandparents. It was 1937, just after the Second World War. It's actually a very interesting story. My grandmother was a ballet dancer. She danced with the Ballet Russe, so she was actually quite famous in the ballet world at the time. And my grandfather worked at the Cape Times. So both very creative people. My grandfather decided to go off and fight in the Second World War. And when he returned, he said, I'm never taking another order. As long as I live, we're going farming. And much to everyone's surprise, my grandmother went, that's okay, we can do that on one condition. And that condition set up my fate for me. Her condition was we need to be able to see where we came from, which practically meant that from the farm that they bought, there needs to be a view of Table Mountain. I believe they lived in Rondebosch at the time. Having lived there, they sold up their house and then they started looking for a suitable farm. So they got to Stellenbosch, lots of beautiful farms, beautiful views, couldn't afford the prices. Then they went to Paul, lovely farms, affordable, but then they were looking at Paul Mountain. So slowly but surely, they moved to all the various areas until they found this one farm in Wellington, which was neatly situated between Paul Mountain and the Paderberg and had a straight view of Table Mountain because not all the farms in Wellington have a view of Table Mountain. It's just the few farms on the front slopes of Hrunberg that have a view of Table Mountain. So that was their buying criteria, and that's how they ended up buying the farm. The farm's original name was Homut, which means keep the faith or don't give up in Afrikaans, which is actually quite a heavy name. And it was a very appropriate name because what they didn't know when they bought it is in the 10 preceding years before they bought it, seven different farmers went bankrupt on it. So the farm had quite a hell of a hit rate. And the reason for that was that Misha farms got two predominant soil types. It's actually got lots of soil types, but just to simplify it, we've got our lower-lying alluvial soils in the valley, which at the time were very poorly drained. So they're very good soils, but they were poorly drained. And then we have our sloping decomposed granite soils on which most of our vineyards are at the moment, which are very well-drained, but they're relatively poor soils. So my grandparents were predominantly fruit farmers, even though we've always had grapes on the farm. So what would happen is we'd have a wet winter once every seven, eight years, on the lower-lying soils, the water table would rise, and then some of the fruit trees' roots would rot. Those trees would die, then they'd have to replace them. But it took, I think, three, four years for them to come in bearing. So if you look at that cycle, the trees that bore fruit on the lower-lying soils 
bore a lot of fruit. They just never had enough trees bearing at the same time to make it viable. And then on our sloping soils, they had the opposite problem. All the trees were fine, but they just weren't that productive. So in terms of my grandparents' farming career, they achieved their goal in that they wanted to live in the country and farm, but they struggled economically. There's a wind that used to blow through Wellington called Black Southeaster, and they had three years in a row where the whole fruit crop was blown off the trees two or three weeks before harvest. So for three successive years, they had almost no income. It was very difficult. My grandmother took up ballet teaching in the local town and it actually it, it got to the point where if one of the girls that uh, was taking ballet didn't show up for a lesson that would literally be a meal in the week that they wouldn't be eating it got pretty rough my name is Gordia Furi. i'm head of wine and viticulture at Boswan family vineyards in wellington and what that means has changed over the years it started in 2007 being the head bottle washer the labeler the exporter absolutely all parts of the business where now I'm so fortunate to have a fantastic team and strategically I'm looking at all of our vineyards and where they fit into our product ranges and our wine ranges and it's evolved into something really fulfilling and extremely fortunate to be able to now almost be more in the vineyard side and making sure that those lines right into those wonderful wines make absolute sense from how we work with these vineyards and what they translate to on the wine side then in the end. Borsman, maybe just as an introduction, it's an eighth generation wine family story where the Borsmans have been growing grapes for a very long time. They're also a vine nursery, which is also very relevant for the Wellington story in that Wellington is one of the most important vine nursery areas for the South African wine industry. Multi-generational nurserymen as well and then making wines in a 270-year-old small boutique cellar, but then also more recently acquired a facility in the Voerpaardeberg, where we now have the opportunity to make more of our wines as well. But historically very much nestled in the Wellington Wine Valley. I'm David Sonnenberg. I'm the owner of Dimas Fontaine. Dimas Fontaine's in the Wellington area. We've been making wine in this area for just over 21 years now. And we came to prominence, I think, because of Pinotage. It's really helped to put us on the map, and we've got a number of different styles that I think have shown the diversity of what we're able to produce from the grape. So the farm has been in my family for three generations, but my wife and I started the cellar 21 years ago. We've made a small entry into the United States, but our biggest external market is Europe. But we're fundamentally a South African producer who produces 80% for our local market. Hi, I'm Francois Rode. I'm the cellar master here at Dimas Fontaine. I've been here since 2003, starting as a cellar hand, working in a cellar. And ever so gradually uh, worked up and at the current position, I'm overseeing the vineyards as well, including the cellar and production. And it's an awesome ride to be part of a team for 20 years and to see how things have grown from a small production facility to something that's as big as we are now, as David said. We've been driven, but we've got a lot of other wines in our sleeve and sometimes new ones coming out each year. We do our Cabernet Sauvignon, our Shiraz, we do Chenin Blanc, the Sauvignon Blanc, and then also some new entries is Cabernet Franc that we did 
two years ago, which is doing quite well. Wellington's background in terms of winemaking originally started way back in the early 1700s. The second oldest cooperative winery was actually in our valley. So winemaking has been going for an awful long time historically. In the last couple of decades, I suppose you could say Wellington was best known for being the center of the nurserying area of South Africa. It produces 90% at least of all the rootstock of the wine industry as well as the table grape industry as it happens. And Wellington was chosen for that because of its amazing drained soils, which was very suitable for nurserying. But of course, a few people woke up to the fact that those same conditions were also outstanding for the production of fine wine. But there were only a, literally a handful of cellars that were producing bottled wine. There were a couple of larger co-ops doing bulk. But in terms of bottled wine, you could say in the early 1990s that there were probably four or five historic winemaking companies. But I think round about the mid to late 90s, people started to wake up about the fantastic quality of the soils in Wellington. And I was certainly amongst them. My father had produced on Dimasfontein wines that went back many years, up to about the 60s. In fact, incidentally, we're about to launch an old vine, Shenan, that is from grapes that my late father planted. But it was really only towards the end of the 90s that people started investing in a number of, of new estates. And I think there was a wake-up about just how amazing this area was. And I think it is distinctive, as Francois mentioned, about the heat of Wellington and the combination of being able to really do wonderful, properly ripened vineyards on very rich, almost pudding soils, as they call it, has produced amazing quality of upfront fruity wines. Wellington's original name was Varmarkers Valley, which is Wagon Makers Valley. Back in the day when people arrived from Europe and they were going to trek inland, they would first go to Wellington because that's where the wagons were made. So they would generally go to Wellington, buy a wagon, and then continue inland to wherever their final destination was. So the making of the wagons is kind of Wellington's historic thing. Wellington is the hub of the nursery industry for South Africa. So it's a massive amount, like 90% of the grafted vines in the industry are grafted in Wellington. And it's actually more specific than that. I think if you draw a five kilometer circle around our farm, I think that's something like 80% of the industry. There are two reasons that I think the South African nursery industry has become concentrated in Wellington. The firstly, I think, is over time, kind of the skills and the resources have got more and more concentrated because it is quite a, a highly skilled industry. And so I think it's just naturally evolved into the more people with those skills being in the same place, thus creating more of the industry in the same place, thus creating more skills. And then also climatic. Wellington has got some very nice, rich soils that are suited to nursery, but also we get quite a mild early heat because the breaking of the dormancy of the grafted vines is very important, and Wellington seems to just be the sweet spot for that. So it's not impossible to graft in other places. There are nurseries in other places, but the Wellington nurseries just over time have become more and more successful and dominant in the industry. My father grew up in these tough circumstances, and he 
looked at this and went, look, I really like farming. It's great, but we got to make money at this. So who are the farmers in Wellington that, that, that are making a success? And he looked around and he saw vine nurserymen are doing well. I want to become a vine nurseryman. Interestingly, then as now, the nursery industry is somewhat of a closed industry. There's nowhere where you can go to learn the specifics of how to graft vines in South Africa. So you can get the general knowledge, but the specific knowledge of exactly how and exactly when and exactly what is knowledge that's kept quite close to the chest by the nurserymen. And then also most of the rootstock supply is also controlled by the nurserymen. So if you want to start grafting, you need rootstock to graft onto. Since the nurserymen is probably not going to sell it to you so you can compete with them, it's very difficult to enter the market. So what my father did quite cleverly way back in the day is he went around to some of the surrounding vineyards and told the farmers, look, I'll prune your vineyards for free if I can keep the clipping. So they went, oh, that's fantastic. So he would go through the vineyard and cut off all the what's called in the industry villalueta or wild shoots, which are rootstock shoots, which grow out of old established vineyards, collect those for grafting and then just prune one or two of the rows of vines as one would expect. And then he would take them back to farm, graft them together. And that's how we started our nursery. He was quite successful in his career. He grew our nursery to one of the largest ones in the industry. As a vine nursery, we have access to a lot of the newest cultivars and things like that. So we have quite a few firsts. I believe we were the first people in Wellington to bottle a Roussan. I still don't know of anybody else in Wellington doing a Roussan. Also, to my knowledge, we're one of the first farms to bottle a Petit Sarai. So in terms of cultivars, we have quite a spread because I really like investigating new things. So we've planted quite a few smallish vineyards of different things. If you could imagine, in the 50s, the family stopped making wines because it was a very distinctive moment in time when the wine industry in South Africa was changing. So winemakers were coming from abroad. They were telling the industry that change was needed. Cold fermentation was a new modern technology that needed to be incorporated. So the family said, you know what, we either need to invest in our cellar or we could follow this new opportunity which lies within viticulture and the nursery business. So the Bosmans decided to follow that route, which obviously in hindsight was so fantastic for the wine business just to have that wonderful grounding and also knowing that all of our vines are procured from our own nursery. But that being said, 2007, that very pivotal year of re-entering the wine industry after all of those years, I think the initial thought was we would fill that 270-year-old cellar with, let's say, 180 tons capacity. That was the initial idea. And I think it was also almost more as a marketing outlet for the vine nursery and also the opportunity to really make these distinctive, beautiful, almost single-site wines. At Bosman, we're able to permanently employ more than 500 permanent workers. And the long and the short is that at Bosman, because we're involved in the whole value chain, from the grafting of all of our own vines, which we then produce for the industry. So one in three vines planted in South Africa comes from the Bosman vine nursery, for instance. Table grapes and dried raisin grapes and then the nursery, which supplies the producers of wine grapes. But then on the other hand, also tending to our own vineyards for our own wines and then making the wines itself, being part of the production of wines, makes sure that we obviously are able to keep 500 permanent workers fully employed within our business throughout the year. 
Wellington has been my home now for the last 22 years. I was studying at Stellenbosch and needed to do a practical harvest. My practical harvest led me to Diemersfontein and made wines there. In the end, met my husband, the love of my life at Diemersfontein and stayed. So after 21 years, I'm still part and parcel of this beautiful little town. It's wonderful in that I can see Table Mountain from most of our estates. So it's close enough to the bustling city, but it's definitely a small little town. It takes me five minutes to get anywhere, which is great. But I think Wellington is best known for the fact that it has wonderful sunshine. We love the generosity of the sun here. I think for a long time, because of the hype around cool climate, I think we were a little bit taken aback about how to talk about this wonderful place. And luckily, I think Wellington has come full circle now knowing that with focusing on the right grapes, it's definitely something that we can just be so happy about and be thankful for. Things like Chenin Blanc is just the most amazing grape variety to work with here. If you harvest early in the season, you have all of these beautiful, almost soft citrus notes that then goes into white peach, then peaches, pears, and then goes into tropical fruit the more ripe it becomes. So Wellington does give you the opportunity with early season to almost tap into all of those different renditions of something like Chenin Blanc, for instance. And then, yes, we might not be planting things like Sauvignon Blanc, but focusing on Chenin's, the Vionir, the Grenache Blancs. We've been planting Fermentino and just all of these almost sugar and varietals because they do so tremendously well in our drier area climate. The other thing is that obviously in terms of deeper and more concentrated red expressions, I think Wellington is really well adapted. I think the Pinotages, even the Cabernets from here are so beautifully dense and have a lot of personality. And it has a lot to do with the fact that obviously it is quite dry here, but it means that our grapes are usually lovely and healthy. The other thing is that our soils are mostly decomposed granite soils. So we have fantastic water drainage, which is one of the big reasons why it is such a wonderful place to have a vine nursery as well. So you never have wet roots. It's always lovely and aerated soils. And that decomposed granite, I think, gives this beautiful backdrop to which grape varieties and also winemakers and sellers can express themselves. I do think that that granite really gives just this blank slate of great expression. The other thing is that Wellington is very diverse. We have all of these different spaces. You have the Boerflay, which is basically leading up to Bains Kloof with all of these nooks and crannies. Such a different kind of experience in comparison to, let's say, next to the Berg River, which has very different soils and more homogenous vineyards. So Wellington itself is very, very different. It's all about where you find yourself in Wellington itself gives you very different expressions. So I think it's not just one thing and it's also not been put in a box yet. So it's still something that needs to be discovered and unpacked, I think, as more of these single sites maybe become more well-known and discovered. As most things in South Africa and especially in winemaking in the Western Cape, there are big variations in small distances. Misha is in the Hunberg ward, which is one of the newest demarcated wards in the wine of origin system. Our soils are markedly 
different from some other areas in Wellington, but more specifically our climate. And it's one of the things that makes the Krunberg wines and the Misha wines very specific and have a slightly different character to the rest of the Wellington wines in that if you think of where Table Mountain is, and you draw a straight line to Grunberg, on your left and your right, you've got Paul Mountain and you've got Paderberg. So when in the heat of summer, Grunberg heats up, that hot air has got to rise. So that means the cooler air has got to get pulled in. And because of the situation of Paderberg and Paul Mountain, the only place that can draw it from is actually the coast because it can't pull it from inland. So it actually creates this incredible funnel effect where in the afternoons, generally around four o'clock, you can feel this cool breeze coming through the vineyards and specifically the more they're on the slopes of Hunberg, the more noticeable it is. There's two common characteristics between almost all the great red wines in the world. They on granitic soils and they have a big day-night variation in terms of temperature. And so we do have granitic soils being that Hunberg is a big lump of decomposed granite. And from what I just explained, that's why we get a very nice day-night variation because Wellington is a warmer region during the day, but then cool off nicely. So we get that day-night variation, which is essential for depth in red wines. The Missfontaine's got different soils. Again, we've got some beautiful granite and some shales. So we've got vineyards planted on granite and on shale, and they both contribute. The shale is just gives a beautiful depth and color and structure. So Wellington, with its soil type, its climate, Pinotar thrives. It grows beautifully. It doesn't struggle in any of that sort. And the fruit is just good quality. There's a very nice linkage between Pinotage and Wellington. The viticulturalist who originally devised the cross between Pinot Noir and Sanso, or Hermitage, was a gentleman called Isaac Perold. And in fact, he was born no more than three kilometers away from Dimasfontein on the Pal side in a very historic little estate. And he's actually buried there as well. I visited the grave not long ago. And it's a very nice story because as you Pinotage was initially just propagated as an experiment. And that was in the early 1920s, if I recall. It didn't really become a commercially viable grape until probably 1970 or so. But Wellington was at the heart of that innovation and if you like, the birthplace of Pinotage through Dr. Perold. So Wellington, we call it Hellington because it's quite hot in summertime. So it makes it quite challenging to what varieties you can actually plant and, and grow in this area. And over the years, we've seen that Pinotage enjoys warm climate. Not that I say it doesn't suit any cooler area. If I look at Dimasfontein, we've got southern sloped Pinotage towards northern to northwesterly slope Pinotage vineyards. The southern slopes are cooler, so you get a bit more like a red fruit combination from that more fresher style. And on the warmer slopes, you get more that deep, rich, plum, black fruit styles from it. So it's a nice combination of playing with that. And we in Wellington, uh, we like to pick it quite ripe. And it works well. It expresses the varietal. Although coffee pinotage is a bit different to a style of, of the pinotage, but we do express it through our carpe diem pinotage where we express that varietal that suits this area. And there's a couple of producers in Wellington itself that produce beautiful pinotage wines in their top range category. I believe from here to the Swatland, which is more to the West Coast side, we produce some of the beautiful pinotages in this area. 2001 was when 
the previous winemaker, Badges Ferry, he had a tank with oak staves, specifically French oak staves. And as he told me, the tank was actually destined for Shiraz and Pinotage in Wellington. As harvest starts in January in Wellington, Pinotage is the first red grape to ripen. It's a very early red variety. It was coming in thick and fast, and he actually was running out of tank space. And he still had this tank with oak staves in it, destined for Shiraz. And he decided, well, he doesn't have a choice now. He's got to use this tank. And I believe he had an idea what's going to happen. But I came this wine that we call now the coffee-style pinotage or coffee and chocolate pinotage. It's got this intense aromas of mocha, roast, toasty, bacon kip kind of characteristics, still with a bit of a fruit of pinotage, which is black fruit, blackberry, plum coming through. And from then on, that's how Dimison then got known as the pinotage producers, especially coffee pinotage. And still today, when you mention Dimison then, they go like, ah, coffee pinotage. So that's definitely something that stick to us. And over the years, we've actually experimented with different styles of pinotage and we brought out in 2018 another one to our family called The Prodigy. And it's slightly oaked. Pinotage, more in a category where you can enjoy it with everyday occasion, with a braai. Even in summertime, you pop it into the fridge for half an hour and you chill it down. I always believe Pinotage has got that sort of pin in the wash side. If you chill it a bit down, you get a little freshness and fruit coming through as well. We believe definitely that that sort of brings into the portfolio that perspective. So you've got a nice sort of everyday drinking Pinotage. You've got our coffee-style Pinotage, which is... For any occasion, but you can enjoy it with food. And at some point, we use it as a dessert wine because we didn't have it in the dessert wine. So anything chocolate-wise or a chocolate fondant or brownie-style thing, we did with that. And then we've got a reserve pinotage. Even tried our hand a bit with pinotage port for fun. It's just on the side a few barrels, and we did that a few years. Then we also did a pinotage blend called the Harlequin, predominantly Shiraz, but it's a... 70% Shiraz, 30% Pinotage, more or less blend each year. And it's a combination, I think, of David's favorite varietal, which is Shiraz. He loves it. And together with Pinotage, which is Dimasfontaine's known varietal for it. So you definitely get that nice Shiraz spiciness coming through with a bit of that mocha kiss at the end of Pinotage. And the Harlequins, it's the one label in our range, which is from a portrait that David owns. And the idea was to... Do something different than the usual label and look that we do have. And at the same point, also contribute money back to emerging artists for them as a fund to use and to help. Carl Buchner, who was the painter and he loved painting Harlequins, he passed away, but we're still contributing to the art gallery where, the, where his, his work has been shown. So that's basically what we've done on Pinotage, but we're promoting it. It loves the area. Naturally, we have a bias towards pinotage, and I think because the coffee-style pinotage has been so distinctive in, in the States, it was really wonderful. In one of the New York wine shows that I attended a couple of years ago, we had the magazine Consumer Reports come through and taste, and we were the only wine that they wrote up in the whole show. So... Clearly, Pinotage and one of the styles that we produce certainly hooked the imagination. And I think over the years, there's been criticism of Pinotage in terms of what a wild grape it was, in fact, to 
But our winemakers over the last couple of decades have certainly tamed the beast and uh, concur with Francois. They're, they're really beautiful quality uh, wines that are being produced by the country now. And that certainly allows us to be confident that the Pinotage grape can produce fine wines as good as any of the other varietals. That's taken a bit of persuasion in the markets, but I certainly find that any prejudice about the varietal is now disappearing. And that's for good reason, that the quality has been up so substantially by a lot of hard work and dedication in the, in the whole Pinotage community. Over the years, and certainly over the 21 years that we have been in business, we've seen, if you like, a, a core commitment to the wines that are most famous in Wellington, which is Chenin Blanc and Pinotage, but also a few other varietals like Malbec. And we make a fantastic Grenache Rosé as well. And Rhone varietals being more suitable to the whole Wellington Valley than the Bordeaux styles. That having been said, we also do a cracking cab, and so do some of our neighbours. So if you like, there's a core few varietals, but we've also shown the ability to create diversity in our styles. So it's been quite hard to actually tease out a focus and stick to it. I absolutely love our Shiraz, and I have to acknowledge that in South Africa there are so many outstanding areas that produce Shiraz, perhaps in different styles. What I think does very well in Wellington is the upfront fruit, and that's what I really like about the Shiraz that we produce. As it happens, that is my favorite wine. But I also like very much the way that we've used it in blending. These have been very successful. Because our background, we've been a vine nursery longer than we've been a winery, our focus is more on the viticultural side than the winemaking side, which suits my personal style. I like being outside, being in the vineyard. So that's where our focus is. We work as hard as we can in the vineyards, so we don't have to do that much in the winery. In terms of vineyards, our Bigger plantings are what you'd expect. So we've got quite a bit of Cabernet, quite a bit of Merlot, quite a bit of Firaz. But then additionally, we have Malbec, Grenache, Petit Syrah, Roussan. And then we also have some Cab Franc and some Petit Verdot. So those are the cultivars on the farm. And we actually use all of them in our various blends and all bottled and the singles. So there's no vineyard on the farm that we don't work with. My winemaking philosophy is quite simple. It's grape barrel bottles. As close to that as we can get, the fewer interventions we can do in the winery, the better, the less things we need to add to the wine or take out of the wine in terms of filtration or anything like that, the better. So that's our goal is to be as minimal intervention as we can in the winery and our interventions in the vineyard we try to keep to non-invasive ones such as pruning techniques complex cover cropping for specific goals things like that we have a few ranges the introductory range if you will are familial wines so we have a cab and a merlot these wines are mostly our own grapes but we also buy in grapes from some other farms because we just don't have enough grapes on our farm to do the necessary volumes the majority of them actually come from a school friend of mine who's across the valley in the Berg called Jan Ekstien. So we get quite a bit of stuff from him. And it's also nice because he's a client of our nursery besides being a friend. So I also have a very good idea of what's planted where. I know his farm. I know his soil. So therefore, I've got a very good idea of the quality of the grapes we're going to be getting in. Then moving up, we have our state range, which as 
the name implies, those are all grapes from the estate, made on the estate, bottled on the estate. Then we have our heritage range. So unfortunately, none of our vineyards are old enough on the farm to be heritage vineyards yet. We have a block of Shiraz that I think will become heritage in a few years. So we buy in some Chenin Blanc from Jan Ekstein. He's got a fantastic vineyard that's actually on a fault line between Paderberg and I forget which the other mountain is. So it's actually where the two mountains grind up against each other. And there's this very rough gravel that comes out of that and the vineyard's just planted on that strip. So it gives a very lean, flinty, minerally shannon, which to me is very unique. And the block being so old, it's got that beautiful depth that one only gets from the really old vines. So we've got that. And then we've also just added a Cinso to our heritage range. Then we have our reserve range, which is very limited in production. And that's often a range that I use to kind of experiment with if there's a little bit of something that, that I think is going to be interesting or I want to try, we'll do that in there. At the moment, our reserve range consists of our Grenache, Malbec, and Petit Syrah. Then we have two other wines. We have our Pinnacle wine, which is our Cerno, uh, which is a blend of the grapes on the farm. Everyone pushes me to go, well, what's in there? I, as far as possible, try not to tell people what's in it. And the reason for that is not that I want to obscure the fact, but the point of the wine is not what it's made out of. The point of the wine is this is Misha in a bottle. So if I go, oh, it's cab-based or it's this-based, then, then people tend to fixate on that specific cultivar and go, yes, I can taste the Cabernet or the Cabernet Francs like this. And that's not the point of the exercise. The point is, if you'd like a snapshot of what our vineyards are like on the farm, close your eyes, sip that wine, and then you'll have a very good idea. So that's what we're trying to do with Cerno. And then we've also got a very exciting new project that we're doing with Professor Hunter at the ARC Research Institute called Ring Fence which is a Cabernet Franc-dominated blend because he's got a, a very big passion for that cultivar and that specific vineyard on our farm. We've been working with him for a number of years and been toying with the idea of putting something in a bottle, but the vineyard wasn't quite up to scratch for a few years, and then we also weren't happy because he's got a very specific tannin profile that he wants in that wine, and we finally put a blend together. We went, yes, he's happy with us. This is the wine that he likes. That's kind of our top wine at this point in time, and also a very exciting project and a, a great honor to be working with Professor Hunter. Having the vine nursery and also being subcontracted by government to have a quarantine station as part of that vine nursery means that the short lead time into bringing in different grape varieties is just so much shorter. When we brought in Nero Davila in 2004, it was a process which actually only got us to a labeled bottle of wine in 2015. So if you could imagine just how long that red tape took to get us to a new point for our wine story specifically. Luckily, over the years, it's become shorter. And because of this quarantine station, that link is much shorter. We're able to bring in plant material. We're able to plant small selections of it actually make small-scale wines of them, look at these wines critically, and then make decisions on what we think has potential and what we think might be interesting for our industry. I think it's really important that for all of those years when South Africa wasn't really part of the bigger wine industry story in isolation, I think we were planting and thinking about things which were made famous in other places. We were planting Shiraz and Merlot and Cabernets and all of these things. And yes, 
definitely with just how diverse and beautiful South Africa is, many of these plantings were extremely positive and so successful. But I think there's definitely something to be said about how distinct our climate is and that we should be looking at those places in the world which is more like South Africa. And maybe just giving those grapes a fair chance. Nero Davila was one of those things where we just knew that Sicily had so many touching points with Willington specifically. Abundance of sunshine, let's say water scarcity to some extent, that we wanted to give it a fair chance. And we're really, really excited with what we've seen. I think the important thing also, though, is that if you have the opportunity to make 52 grape varieties or wines, obviously we don't because... In some ways, we do still want to focus and we still want to bring those relevant stories. So a lot of what we're busy with is actually behind the scenes, growing some experimental plots, making small-scale wines, and going through that process to really filter through to what we think might be relevant for our industry in future. Our Generation 8 wines are the wines that need to be in your fridge. It needs to be in your wine room, your closet, wherever you keep your wine. But those are the everyday, really enjoyable standards. Single cultivars, Chenin, Rosé, Cab, Shiraz, Merlot. That's maybe the base of our range. Generation 8 doesn't speak really of this historical thing. It speaks about the current generation. And the tagline for us there is being dedicated to better. Generation 8 also speaks about the fact that we are on a regenerative route for our business, looking at soil health looking at sustainability and obviously with the fair trade aspect, also looking at ethical sustainability. From there onwards, we have blends. We love blends because we, as a multiple ownership model business, we know that you get that synergy when things work together even better than those singular things. Blends have always been quite important in our range. So we have the Adama white and red blend. Those are fair trade. And then the white blend is also organic. From there onwards, it's those single site executions, the Optinor Chenin Blanc, and the third or the Chenin Blanc in South Africa as a single bottling. We also have the Twaifling Sinso, also from a single site, and then Skin Contact Grenache Blanc called Fides, which definitely in terms of if I look at just how people enjoy it, the U.S. market has been such a great market for this wine specifically, and it definitely just speaks to the fact that there's an exploration to things like natural wines and skin contact wines, which is almost level to nothing that we've seen on other places. So I'm really happy for that. And then obviously, in terms of our own wine club in South Africa, something that maybe our guests and our customers from abroad don't get to see really is that we use our wine club in South Africa to play around with to declutter the brand, to make sure that it's not 52 different things. Those wonderful little light bulbs, they do get to be tasted in the wine club selection. So that's where we keep the experimental things and the things that keeps the winemakers happy. That's where that happens. So in terms of the multiple ownership model for Bosman, 26% of the business is owned by its workers. So I think we need to be honest that a very long time before 1994, the Bosman family had a really open door approach in terms of working with the people who've been working on the farm for also more than five generations. So if you're talking about eight generations of Bosmans, there are many of my colleagues who can follow their lineage back five generations also on that farm. So I think for the Bosmans, it was important that they wanted to grow their business, but instead of getting 
people from outside, it was this thought that there was a long-standing relationship and a trust between the workers and the family, and that in some way it was possible through this biggest land reform transaction in the wine industry still to date, that the workers could also earn a well-earned share in this business. I think it's been hugely fulfilling and beneficial relationship in which the community itself has grown tremendously. If you come to Wellington and come and see absolutely pre-primary school level through all of the stages of, let's say, the community in schooling, high school, the amount of effort that goes into children now going into tertiary education, which is absolutely amazing. Those kids coming back into our business and becoming part of our mid to top management team in the end as well. And even just things like the women's club, the men's club, the rugby club, the after school activities, which really just makes for a different kind of wealth, but a wealth in the community of a lifestyle, which I think definitely has been one of the biggest reasons why I really enjoyed being part of this business now also for the last 16 years, to seeing how it grows and how it's moved from strength to strength. 2008 started with fair trade accreditation, 2009, the first year that we were accredited as fair trade producer. And from that moment onwards, there was just this exponential growth in that part of the market specifically. We started producing buyer's own brands, obviously, for quite a lot of, let's say, retail customers of ours. And it grew from there. Obviously, also started with our own branded product, which grew almost out of bounds from this small seller. So it was a different thing for us. We then said single site and these beautiful wines under the guidance of Natasha Williams in the Lely Fontaine historical seller. And then also acquiring a seller which is more applicable for a little bit of growth and the scalability of our product. So that was it. But I think if we needed to be very honest, it was that growth linked to the need for fair trade wines in industry. And then the other things I think which also played a big role is that we aligned ourselves with things like organic produce. And as we are seeing some wonderful growth in those markets as well, it's that pull from the market and that's where we've gone. I think the way that a wine estate creates its identity is such an important thing. What is it that defines the distinctive elements of a wine estate? And I think Dimas Fontaine, apart from the wine itself, is the chosen path that I think my wife and I, as the proud owners of it, have tried to emphasize. And that is that as privileged members of the South African society, it's been our intention to plow back as much as we can during our lifetime. And I think that's the responsibility of South African business owners. So we've tried to do that in a number of different ways. And we do focus on education. So Dimas Fontaine Wines actually co-sponsors in a small way a school that we've set up on Dimas Fontaine that has been going very successfully now for going on 20 years and it's a school we're very proud of. It's a high-end education, fee-paying school, but we managed to subsidize a number of the school kids from poorer backgrounds. So small classes, a lot of diversity, both in terms of the staff group and the learner group. So they're kids from all backgrounds who merge together, if you like, in a very happy and successful school. 
in relation to education, we're also into music. We have a number of sponsorship programs for young classical singers and opera singers, some of whom have done extremely well internationally. And that's been a great love of ours. And in relation to our own staff, which of course is our primary responsibility, we've created this company also going on 20-year history now called Tokazani, which is a Zulu word meaning let us celebrate. And that company has, due to the hard work of all of us, and particularly my HR director and director of Tokazani, Denise Stubbs, we've taken this company, I think, to reasonably new heights within the industry in as much as what started as a small investment company by the staff and the creation of its own wine brand, plus the ownership of some real estate, has now moved to being a company that has been able to acquire a majority share in the mother company, the mothership Dimasfontein Wines. So it's seen as a pretty substantial empowerment model, the best sense of what we can do. So we've tried to do it so that the true purpose of empowerment is that people become not just owners for the sake of being owners, but owners based on their competence and loyalty. So we're work in progress, but we're pretty happy with the progress to date. I think the big thing about the social sustainability and the environmental, it's like a business sustainability. If you link these things together, what we forget is that working with vineyards is a very specialized thing. The other thing is that, yes, you could get people to come every year and you could teach people to do these things year on year. But if there's an inherent knowledge of working with vines, I think it's just such a big advantage. The second thing is that obviously when people love what they're doing and if they're motivated and if they have ownership, it's important for them that the business does well. I think that you do well when you enjoy what you're doing. And we absolutely see this. And we also now see this in a multi-generational way that people have been enjoying what they've been doing. They've built lives in this community and they've seen that being part of it could be beneficial in the longer term. So I think it's all about, yes, it's about the people, but it's also about people enjoying what they're doing and getting the opportunity to grow within the viticultural environment. I think we underplay just how proud and how specific the viticultural scope is. And I'm happy that at Bosman, obviously people understand where they fit into this bigger value chain and that they do contribute and that it's important. Wellington is very much still undiscovered. I think many of Wellington's grapes and most beautiful export almost product is our grapes and it is used in wonderful brands and wonderful wines. And sometimes the fact that it is from Wellington is maybe lost in that it might be certified as either coastal or Western Cape. But we do know that in our industry, people really do value the concentration, the clarity, our beautiful shenans, our beautiful pinotages. So I think there is locally an understanding of where Wellington fits into the bigger South African story. I think it's a great opportunity for people to try the wines of Wellington and discover something new because what I find great about them and obviously it's my region is even though they are South African wines there is a very unique characteristic to Wellington wines in terms of a bright red fruit that you can taste throughout the area which is very characteristic of the region that I think will have a broader appeal. I think people just need to become aware of it and try it and experience it.
In terms of the lack of presence of Wellington in the market, it's because it literally didn't exist. Wellington's always made a lot of wine, but it's generally been through the bigger co-ops. And because it was part of Paul, and Paul back in the day was a very strong region in terms of marketing, all that wine would become Paul wine. So literally it didn't exist. And I think we were one of the first wine estates in Wellington. So there also weren't any small private producers. So there was very little... Wellington wine labeled as Wellington wine in the market. So that's the number one reason. And I think in the last 20 years, there's just been an explosion of new farms and new brands and new sellers, which I think is fantastic. And I think the region as a whole deserves more recognition than it's got. So I would implore people to explore Wellington wines and try them for yourself. I think you'll be in for a great surprise. I hope you enjoyed this look at the District of Wellington. You can find links to the wineries we spoke with, maps, and other information at our website. WOSA.US. Just click on the podcast tab. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends, or better yet, go to the platform where you found it and leave a review. That will help more people discover and discover South African wines. Next time, we're going to visit another one of the mountains that make up the landscape of Stellenbosch. It's soon to be acknowledged as an official ward, but those in the know already realize that the Helderberg may translate literally as clear mountain, but in the glass, It means great Cabernets, generous Chardonnays, and a whole lot more. I hope you'll join us.